0: Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6. We finished our exposition of the book of Titus a while ago. We are looking forward to beginning an exposition in the gospel of John, which pray for me. I would like that to begin next week. And so just pray for me that we can get into that exposition, that will be prepared to start that next week. We'll be in the Gospel of John for some time. We've taken the occasion, being between books here, between Titus and between John, for some months, taken the occasion to kind of do some housekeeping, maybe touch on some topics that we felt are necessary as a church. We did a series on forgiveness the series on forgiveness led to a discussion about the church's, the congregation's authority and responsibility. Remember, we talked about the keys of the kingdom. We talked about that and a few other things in there. Uh, it gave opportunity just to deal with some various topics that we felt were necessary for the church. This morning is no different. This morning is going to be kind of the end of that as we look forward to starting into the in exposition of John. This is something that I think is necessary for our church, considering where we are at this point in our Growth. As you can see, this place is getting more and more full. Uh, We have uh, some plans in place. There's some phone calls that have been made and some uh, plans on the table when it comes to uh, getting us some more room. Okay, And so that involves opening this up, using the house portion for classrooms and perhaps building a parsonage. So uh, we have some of that in the works presently, um, fact-finding mainly. So pray for us. Uh, As far as that's concerned, uh, we would like the growth to continue. But that being said, with any growth comes what? With any growth sometimes comes growing pains. I thought, well, a good introduction to this message would be for me to find some way to talk about growing pains in the introduction. And I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, uh, you teenager mainly, you're growing, and you would just have pains in your joints and pains in your muscles. And your mom or your dad would say, oh, those are just growing pains. So I decided to Google and look up growing pains, because I thought maybe I'll find the scientific reason for growing pains, and maybe there'll be some type of introduction there where we talk about growing pains. And so I looked it up. It turns up. Turns out it's all a myth. There's no such thing as growing pains. Uh, and doctors are adamant growth doesn't hurt. Okay. So there goes my introduction. So now my introduction is basically saying I have no introduction. Um, So there you go. That's it. Acts chapter 6. Here we go. Uh, In the early chapters of the book of Acts, what we find is the birth of the church. We find the birth of the church. The disciples obeyed their risen Lord. They went to Jerusalem. And there, according to his command, they're waiting for the descent of the Holy Spirit. And as they prayed... You know the story in Acts chapter 2. The place was shaken. There was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. The appearance of fiery tongues kind of came down on all of them. And the Bible says that all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Men and women together there in the upper room. And then they spoke. And the Bible says they spoke the mighty works of God. They're praising God for his works. And miraculously, thousands of visitors to Jerusalem at that time heard those disciples speaking the mighty works of God But the miracle was, they could hear them speaking in their own languages. Languages which the speakers had never learned. It was a miracle produced by God uh, for various reasons. Signs and miracles. This was really commonplace in the early church, and also powerful preaching. Really served as an indication that Jesus Christ, who was crucified, actually was risen, and that his power was still active, and it was active in the apostles and those early disciples. But the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the early church went beyond signs and miracles. One strong evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in that early church, not just signs and miracles, but also their loving unity. Their loving unity. The Bible tells us that thousands of those who were converted as a result of the apostles' preaching and teaching, then dwelt together in unity, which is, you say, well, what's the big deal? They're all Jews. I mean, they're all there to worship at Pentecost. So, I mean, how hard is it really to, to be unified? Well, interestingly, and as we're going to see, because there are a variety, there are thousands of those coming together to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, uh, there was diversity. Diversity. You had the Jews from Jerusalem, and you had the Jews from the Dispersion. You had Jews who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew, but you also had those Jews who spoke Greek. Those Jews in Jerusalem, those Jews from the Dispersion, and there actually was language barrier, cultural barrier, and maybe even a little bit of prejudice between those groups. But representatives from both groups, thousands of which are saved on the day of Pentecost, And here they are then continuing on in the faith as believers in loving unity. And so love and unity amidst a diverse group, as much in evidence as the Holy Spirit's presence as miracles. And so you know Acts chapter 2, and I'm depending upon you to to know. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, wonderful picture of unity among believers. But that didn't last forever. That idyllic scene at Pentecost and the days following Uh, really came into danger. Something threatened that unity. Look in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing, this is growth, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And there's your growing pains. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so I said that there's really two contingents here. You have the Hebrew Jews, and then you have the Hellenists. The Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews, those Jews are influenced heavily by Greek culture who are part of the dispersion. And so you have these two groups in the early church, and the complaint is this. The Greek-speaking Jews are watching the distribution that is the early church following the pattern of the synagogue had various charitable um, funds that were to go out to support either those poor who were traveling through Jerusalem or those poor uh, who lived in Jerusalem. Well, the church followed the pattern of the synagogue and were also providing for uh, the less fortunate uh, through their contributions, especially the widows. And these are widows who were part of the church. But here's the complaint. The Greek-speaking Jews are observing, and they're seeing that as money or food is given to the Hebrew-speaking widows, the Greek-speaking widows seem to be neglected. Could be an oversight, could just be a lack of organization, or could be some signs of prejudice. Don't really know. But the bottom line is it, it was a real problem. We might not know the motivation behind it, but we know that it was a real issue. And so, this church was growing exponentially. And with that growth came not only an increase in numbers, but an increase in needs. And not only an increase in numbers and an increase in needs, but an increase in the likelihood that some might fall through the cracks. This growth would have stretched the apostles thin. Now, the apostles are not a growing number. The apostles are 12, and that's it. The apostles could have been stretched thin because of all this care that was required by this growing church. Now, whether, again, merely because of the result of growth or the result of lingering prejudice among the Jews, the unity of this early church was threatened. And this is going to have to be rectified. Their unity was to be fortified. And so there in chapter 6, verse 1, it says a complaint arose. Very interesting word. Because remember, as you read through the Old Testament, after the Exodus, all that God did for Israel, what do we learn about the Jews in the wilderness? Over and over and over and over again, what do they do? They complain. Same word, murmuring, muttering. But we're not talking about the Jews of the Old Testament. We're talking about the church. I mean, the Holy Spirit-filled church that is known for its unity and now the same type of murmuring or muttering that characterized the Old Testament Jews under the Old Covenant is really peeking its head in the church god forbid far be it from the church to fall into the same pattern of sinful grumbling which continually marked the Jews of the Old Testament so the unity's threatened because the church is growing needs are growing It wasn't just the unity of the church that was threatened, however, as serious as that was. Look in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. What is that? Legitimate need. The widows are being neglected. They need to be cared for. The apostles see the need and somehow... The uh, assertion or maybe the expectation was that the apostles then would go and take care of this. The apostles would go and, and bring the food to the widows. The apostles would go and deliver finances to the widows. So the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, everybody. So thousands there. And the apostles say, it's not right. It's not appropriate for us to give ourselves to, to, to this service. Why? Why? as we're going to see, because they had to give themselves to the ministry of the Word in prayer. So this issue that arose, a threat to unity, but also a risk to the very ministry of the Word of God. It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables, the study, the teaching, the preaching of the Word of God. And so now we emphasize again, the needs of the widows are real. It was the legitimate function of the church to provide those needs. In doing so, it was important to maintain, however, balance and, balance and priorities. And that's what the apostles are saying. If the apostles were to spend their time overseeing and fulfilling the practical needs here, they would neglect the most important callings. And you see this in some churches, right? I mean, you see some pastors or teachers or elders who, uh, rightfully so, are there immersed in the lives of the people, rightfully so. But sometimes a imbalance... Can arise, or a lack of priorities can arise so that then uh, that work then interferes with the ability to study. And you've met men who are wonderful shepherds, wonderful shepherds, caring and loving their people, but frankly, because of an imbalance, the ministry of the word is lacking. And then what we 've done is we've gotten caught up in the work, but we 've forgotten the means. The fact is, God grows the church through the preaching of the Word. He calls men and women to faith through the Word. We have to prioritize the ministry of the Word. And so the apostles understood this, and they said, it's not right, it's not appropriate for us to neglect the ministry of the Word for the purpose, they said, serving tables. This is not something the apostles are willing to do. And so, for the men who were gifted or called to the purpose to spend their time serving, uh, these types of needs, instead of preaching, this was a misapplication of their gifts. A misapplication of their gifts. Again, how many, uh, I'm, I'm going to do this over and over again. We're not trying to say that the practical needs are lesser. The practical needs are important. They are essential. The church needs to meet those needs. However, simply to say this, some other than the apostles were to be appointed to this task. This also means that the ministry of caring for the practical needs of the congregation is of the utmost importance. The apostles that we're going to see are going to appoint some to the task. They don't in any way downplay the importance of these issues. Then by ensuring that these widows receive meals and money and care, uh, what's going to happen is that those who take care of that need are actually going to be supporting the ministry of the word. The apostles don't have to be distracted by it. The apostles can preach the word. The apostles can pray and uh, because they don't have to be concerned about this. Therefore, those who are doing that are supporting this. And the passage continues in verse 2. Again, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. And you say, but this was just an issue with the Greeks, right? I mean, it's their problem. So why don't we just get together and we have a meeting with the Greek-speaking Jews? Why don't we just get together and have a meeting with uh, the widows, uh, Because the apostles understood that when one suffers, all suffer. The apostles understood that this affected the entire church. The apostles understood that the church is one body. The needs of one member affect all members. This was a church-wide problem, which required a church-wide solution. And so whatever prejudice existed prior so that you might have factions, the apostles weren't willing to allow that to continue. So let's all get together and let's all discuss this problem that we're all experiencing, and let's all agree on a solution. And it continues. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, here's the solution. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And uh, you got some other guys there. I don't want to. I don't want to take a running, a running start at those names. So uh, those other guys there, and a proselyte of Antioch. So with that, the apostles strengthened the unity of the church. They strengthened the unity of the church. And the Bible says their solution was accepted by the whole gathering, the whole gathering. And notice I said earlier that the needs of the widows, these practical needs, were not lesser, they're not unimportant, and you can see that by the caliber of men that were appointed. I mean, isn't this interesting that the task at hand here is caring for the widows in the daily distribution? Make sure they get their food. Make sure they're cared for. Well, who can do that? We well, say, well, anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. Anybody can deliver the goods, right? Anybody can bring the bag of groceries. So what's happening here? The apostles say, search you out, men full of The Holy Spirit, good repute, wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. That bolsters the claim that this is an important task. And it wasn't just bringing groceries and bringing money. This was caring for the practical needs of those who might be suffering. This was saying there's care needed. And we're dealing with widows here. This is tender, compassionate care. People who are merciful. Merciful. People who have the character of Christ who can see needs and be moved by those needs and and seek to find ways to help. So a serious problem, church-wide problem, serious solution, church-wide solution, mature men entrusted with this essential service. And so these seven men got to the task of caring for the needs of the widows. And so really this is what you might call a mercy ministry, a mercy ministry. Mercy is that idea of being able to see and be sympathetic towards the suffering of others. Compassion. Willing to come alongside and suffer with others and and to be moved. That empathy that says, this person has a need. We need to come alongside and and help that person through that need. And so these men get to work and they they serve the widows. And then look in verse 5. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and lay their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This passage begins with, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Then it presents a problem, a threat to unity, and a threat to the ministry of the word. It starts with the number of the disciples were increasing, and it ends with the word of God continued to increase. The only reason they can begin with the increase and end with the increase is because a wonderful solution was offered to the problem that was threatening the unity in the ministry of the word. It'd be naive of us as a church to think that as Calvary Baptist Church grows that we would not be susceptible to the same types of threats to unity and to the ministry of the word. And so what I'm suggesting to you this morning, the purpose of all of this is to suggest to you that we too, and I would say even proactively, say, you know what? We need a ministry. We need a mercy ministry. We need a ministry of men and women who have a character similar to these men who were called out in Acts chapter 6, who are willing and able to seek out and to find those who are needy, those who have some uh, uh, need of mercy. Some who need the church to come alongside and help them through their time of difficulty. Those who are willing to make sure that nobody's neglected in the church as the church begins to grow. And so that's our purpose this morning. Now, some believe that these men in Acts chapter 6 are deacons. Deacons. Anybody know who the deacons are at Calvary Baptist Church? I see some head shaking No, Neither do I. <laughs> uh, Some people ask me, do you have deacons? And I say, we do have deacons and we have deaconesses. They just don't know that that's what they are because they operate like deacons and deaconesses. They have hearts of service. They have hearts of mercy. They're serving others. They're they're really serving in that capacity as deacons and deaconesses. We simply haven't distributed those titles. But these in Acts chapter 6, some believe that these are deacons and others don't believe that they are deacons regardless. We know that the office, the biblical office of deacon, which is a biblical office, uh, really you see tremendous parallels in Acts chapter 6. And so perhaps maybe these men were not deacons, but they certainly are a precursor uh, to what would become the office of deacons. The deacon, the word from which we get the word deacon, simply means service simply means service. These are those men and women who uh, are gifted in such a way that they're willing to serve people, willing to serve others, and to serve in such a way that oftentimes is not glamorous, oftentimes doesn't get the spotlights. These are those men and women who are willing to uh, make the phone call and say, hey, I heard that you're going in for a minor surgery. Anything we can help with? Any needs at home? I heard that you've lost a loved one wonderful phone conversation. to get to know this person to see what that relationship was like. To, and then to, to turn around and say, church, I feel like this is what's happening in this person's life and, and this would be the most meaningful the most helpful way for us to mobilize uh, to, uh, to have a meaningful impact in their lives at this moment. These are those who are gifted for service. You go beyond the book of Acts and you realize that this is the pattern for the church. You get into the epistles and, and you understand that this type of sacrificial care which paid close attention to the practical needs of church members, especially those who were suffering, was a hallmark of the church. After all, to show mercy was simply to follow the example that Jesus left us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We have to lay down our lives for the brothers. Which, that's a high calling. I thought we were just talking about bringing groceries to somebody. Now you're saying i got to lay down my life. Look how John describes laying down your life for one another. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how does John define laying down your life for one another? helping with practical needs. If you have the world's goods and see your brother in need, yet close your heart against him, then how does God's love abide in you? So the overflow of God's love in us is what? Uh, it's actually seen in tangible expressions of love and mercy towards one another. James spoke very similarly in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James chapter 2, verse 14. For James, faith expressed without mercy was really no faith at all. He says, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You know, sometimes I think that we... I'm very, very close to this. When we talk to men and women who are struggling, going through difficulty, they're emotionally distraught. We talk to them and they kind of pour their heart out. They express their struggle. And then we respond and say, well, I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. Go warm and be filled. I'm praying for you. Prayer is essential. Prayer is important, but sometimes prayer can also, for us, be a placeholder for real, meaningful expressions of love. So James says, Faith without works is dead. Brother or sisters, poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, you see that need, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, greeting. Just go and be at peace. But you do that without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so at Calvary, we take this seriously, right? Or we have to take this seriously and say, how can we get together and and go through the motions and sing the songs and listen to the preaching and I'm a Christian? But if that's not expressed then in meaningful, personal expressions of mercy and love in each other's lives, when it comes down to real needs, then there's a problem, there's a breakdown somewhere. It sounds very spiritual to put all the emphasis on the ministries of teaching and preaching while downplaying the care of people's practical needs. According to James and John, to meet practical needs actually is spiritual service, and it is the expression of faith. And so a faith which is unwilling to help the suffering or sacrifice for those in need, according to James, is a dead faith. And so we conclude that a church which is not actively organizing to meet the sorts of needs these sorts of needs, is frankly itself on thin spiritual ice. A growing church which is not careful to tend to the practical needs of its suffering or needy members is in the same danger of disunity, which was before the early church. So, as we get into the epistles then, and see God's lasting design for the church, we repeatedly see the congregation. Not simply the leaders, but the congregation. Charged with the task of ministering to one another. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.11. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Justin will help us and put it on the screen for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Notice who's being addressed here. Therefore, encourage one another. One another. And build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Well, now, if the context here is talking to brothers and saying to respect those who labor among you, then we know that this text is being addressed to whom? Not the leaders, but is being addressed to the congregation. It says and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And he says, and we urge you, brothers. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. And so what? Congregation, be active. Encourage one another, build up one another. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient. This is the ministry of the congregation. And so we could say that really every church member ought to be a minister of sorts. Every church member ought to be in some way active, encouraging the faint-hearted, admonishing the idle, helping the weak, being patient with them all. But we do recognize that there are some among us who are maybe more gifted in some of these areas than others. But that passage, again, is addressing the congregation. Now, look at Ephesians 4. And this is a classic passage that we return to over and over again. Ephesians 4, chapter 11. Paul, in the context of spiritual gifts here, says to the church at Ephesus that the Lord gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Those are all leadership positions. For what purpose? To equip the saints. To equip the saints. I'm going to blow your mind right now. You ready? That's why at 945, we have the equip class. You ever made that connection before? That's the equip class, 945. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry so the body can be built up to spiritual maturity, which looks like Jesus. So that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. Spiritual maturity, look like Christ, doctrinal stability, so that you're not deceived by false teaching. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head into Christ, and that's loving unity. And so we have what? We have spiritual maturity, we have doctrinal stability, we have loving unity from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. And there we see selfless service. And so the leadership equips the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry. The result of the saints doing the work of the ministry is spiritual maturity and loving unity and doctrinal stability and selfless service. Don't you love it when you come across a biblical passage that just kind of lays out the mandate for you? Well, there it is. You want to be a healthy church? Well, let's make that happen. And again, the context here is leadership training uh, the congregation not to do what the leadership doesn't do. Right? This is not an ivory tower ministry where the uh, pastor or teacher uh, there in the ivory tower, just uh, in the word all the time and never with the... uh, uh, shoes hitting the ground, never getting involved in people's lives, never getting their hands dirty. That's not the case. But surely there's a priority to the ministry of the Word for the pastor, teacher. As the pastor and teacher engages in ministry, he trains others also to engage in ministry. According to Paul, then, when this arrangement is working properly, the truth will grow in unity, maturity, stability, and love. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Again, the context of spiritual gifts. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, that is, every believer has some measure of God's grace, and that grace is expressed in some way in spiritual giftedness. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, and now he's listing types of spiritual gifts, if service in our serving. and That's the same word from which we get the word deacon service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity. Some people, frankly, are just especially blessed by God so that they have the liberality to be able to give financially. The one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so there, just as an illustration, what we're being told is there are some in the church who are gifted by God's grace who have the ability and the desire to what? Simply to serve, be a deacon, be a deaconess. To contribute contribute financially to those who are less fortunate or who are in need. And then to do acts of mercy. I mean, those who are just really willing to get their hands dirty. Those who are willing to come to meet somebody at their point of greatest need. Paul's list of spiritual gifts, we see that these, service and contribution and mercy, these relate directly to what we might call a member care ministry a member care ministry, or a mercy ministry. The fact that God has gifted some believers for that specific purpose of loving others through practical service and mercy and giving really drives home the point that a well-functioning church, a well-functioning church, not only must have a thriving word ministry carried out by those who are gifted for the task, but a well-functioning church must also have a robust mercy ministry which has equally gifted believers working within that ministry. So what have we learned? A growing church inevitably sees a growing list of needs among its members, which must be met. A growing church inevitably sees a growing list of needs among its members, which must be met. That's the testimony of the early church. That's the testimony of our church. Next, an increase in people who need spiritual material or emotional care also increases the likelihood that some may feel neglected. It's just, it's just reality. I mean, you know it. Some of you have been coming to the same church. We're not a big church, but some of you have been coming to this church for six months, and there's other people here who have also been coming for six months, and you still don't know their names, right? Shame, shame, shame. <laughs> is that not true? I know it's true because I have conversations with some of you, and I mention a name, and you stare at me like, who is that, right? Right? I could go through our prayer list right now, couldn't I? And Last week, what did I do? We went through the prayer list and we had you raise your hand so people knew who you were. That's just part of, that's part of growth. That's part of growth. Those are part of the growing pains. We must do, though, however, as the church grows, is try to maintain that loving unity. Got to get to know one another. And that's why part of what we're going to be doing on Sunday evenings is we're going to ask some of you, there's going to be an invitation. Nobody's going to be put on the spot. We're going to ask some of you ahead of time to, be, to come and to sit up here so that we can get to know you, kind of interview you, get to know your background, understand your salvation testimony, and so on, so that others can get to know you, so we can pray for each other intelligently. That's necessary because the church is growing. But what happens as the church grows and as more people come, more people, more problems, right? And uh, more needs. So... There's an increasing likelihood that some are going to fall through the cracks. Some have some need that others didn't know about. One person knew it, but it didn't get shared. This person knew it. Leadership was never told. That person then said, why didn't anybody reach out to me? Well, that's a failure. That's a failure on the church's part, isn't it? Increase in people means increase in spiritual material or emotional care. Also increases the likelihood that some are going to feel neglected. That's exactly what happened in the early church. Next, what do we learn? The failure to meet these needs has the potential to create disunity, disunity in the church. Also, the failure to meet those needs has the potential to create an imbalance and to threaten the ministry of the word. What do we mean by that? If we don't have an active growing church, which is also growing in its understanding of service, if we're building a church and the church is a church of consumers only, I'm coming here just to get, to receive, instead of to serve and to give, well then all of these responsibilities fall on a very very small group of leadership and then the ministry of the word becomes thre- ministry of the word becomes threatened Next what do we learn Caring for members of the church in times of need or distress is an essential function of the church Next although essential the meeting of the practical needs of members should not cause those ministering the word to neglect their primary calling of ministering the Word in prayer. Next, the way in which the needs of the church can be met and the ministry of the Word can be protected is for some within the congregation to consider it their calling to organize and to mobilize to care for one another. That's the solution. And so Act 6 gives us the problem, and it gives us the solution. Lastly, a spirit-driven member care ministry. A spirit-driven member care ministry like this will result, we think, in further growth and the advancement of the ministry of the Word. That's the result in Acts chapter 6. So with that, all of that was for the purpose to suggest to you as a church that we as a body organize a ministry for this very purpose, that we organize something that we would just simply like to call member care ministry, member care ministry, following the pattern of Acts chapter 6. And so now as we conclude, I simply want to read to you from what I put together as an introduction for Calvary's member care ministry. What I want you to do is to consider whether or not this is a ministry you would like to be involved in. Okay? So here's our mandate. In light of Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, we recognize that a growing church will experience an increase in practical needs among its members, and the demands of those needs have the potential to distract or otherwise hinder the elders from carrying out their primary tasks of prayer in the ministry of the Word. For this reason, we believe that it's necessary for the members themselves, having been equipped by the elders for the task, to give themselves to the work of the ministry, that being a reference to Ephesians 4. We believe that when operating properly, a member care ministry will see the ministry of the Word supported and the overall health of the church increased. That's the mandate. And so here's the mission. To serve our fellow members sacrificially, bearing their burdens when they are weak, supplying their needs when they are without. And offering empathy when they are suffering. Understanding that meeting the practical needs of our members in need of mercy is a spiritual service and a powerful expression of the love which Christ has given to us and commanded we express towards one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. That's our mandate, that's our mission, here's our mindset. In light of Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, we believe that a member care ministry, while meeting practical needs, has an important spiritual impact. As we serve one another practically, we help sustain the unity and therefore spiritual growth of the body. And so this ministry is fundamental to the proper working of the church as the church grows and is essential in support of the ministry of the word. And so here's our method. We desire to be alert to the practical needs of our fellow church members with a focus on those who are suffering or facing difficulty and to either alleviate those needs ourselves or to oversee the delegation of it to those who are best suited for it. And so as much as possible, we desire to address these needs within the member care ministry itself before escalating that uh, to leadership. And so here's some examples. Examples of the types of needs we're talking about. Comfort for the sick and recovering. Comfort for the sick and recovering. Empathy for the bereaved. Support for new mothers. Transportation for those who are in need. Visiting the hospital bound. Visiting the home bound. Caring for the widows or elderly. Assessing financial needs. Even performing small jobs that others are unable to do. And the list could go on and on. And so I could go on. And in my notes here, I have the character qualities of an ideal member care coordinator. But I do want to read to you the ideal character, I'm sorry, the character of an ideal member care worker. The ideal member care worker is someone gifted for selfless service. He or she has an empathetic heart and a desire to relieve the suffering or meet the needs of those who require it. She is someone prone to show mercy towards others and not judgment. Both member care coordinator and worker should believe they have the gift of service. That is, they are comfortable serving behind the scenes without much fanfare. They do not need the spotlight or commendation. Instead, they are satisfied meeting practical needs, knowing that the Lord will reward their efforts and that their work is enabling the church to thrive. I know that we have many people gifted this way, and I can tell by your profession, because you found employment in a way that you are actually operating this way. Conclusion. It's our conviction that the New Testament establishes a pattern for the church which we ought to follow. Whereas the early church implemented a member care ministry when the grumbling started, we hope to implement such a ministry before the grumbling starts. And that helps you understand that I'm not preaching this message because the widows are grumbling, okay? That's not why this has come about. If we do not, we should recognize that we face the same potential threat to church unity and the priority of the ministry of the word that the early church did. So, how do you get involved? If you feel you possess that character the characters of an ideal member care worker, uh, then make yourself known. Make yourself known. Now, What we're going to ask you to do is we would like you to seek out Rajen Warder. Okay? She's not in here, is she? Probably serving somewhere. She's in jumpers. And so, but I would just say, and, and here's an illustration, right? I had talked to Ray about this earlier as maybe functioning as the coordinator of this, and I told her your, your task will primarily be delegation, but uh, I asked if she would head this up, and, and of course, she has that interest. Since then, we brought this up many months ago, since then, she's decided to go back to school. Guess what she's going to school for? She wants to become a PSW. So, in other words, I nailed it, right? She's, she's got the character, she's got the desire, and she's got the giftedness. The issue, though, is Ray's going back to school. So she may not be able to fulfill everything she'd like to do here. And Ray's one of those people that when you're asking for volunteers, she always volunteers to the point where you have to say, no, Ray, you're doing enough, right? Um, And so she she may not be able to function in the capacity, uh, all the responsibilities that this requires. We'll have a conversation about that. Uh, But hopefully uh, her role primarily be delegation. But if you have an interest in uh, getting involved in the member care ministry, I'd like you to see Ray, okay? And does anybody not know who Ray Jen Warder is? There's a lot of you who don't know who Ray is, right? So look for the big, ugly, bald man. Uh, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I meant big, strong, bald man is what I meant. Ah, uh, sorry. Um, he's in the back there. Um, I'm pretty brave, aren't I? Uh, insulting Justin in way. I've seen him run. He's not very fast. Uh, so. So if you see Justin, you might see Ray around Justin, okay? Uh, But see Ray, let her know that you'd like to get involved in the member care ministry. And uh, when Ray feels that she has enough of a group who would like to get involved in this ministry, and that involvement uh, may simply be the fact that you're somebody who's willing to organize meal chains, you're meal trains, you're somebody who's willing to organize a prayer chain. Uh, There's various capacities in which you can serve in the member care ministry. But see, right, when she has enough people that she feels can make the ministry work, then we're going to have a meeting and we're going to talk about some of the particulars, okay? And uh, how this ministry is actually going to function. And so as we close, I quoted this earlier, but remember that the member care ministry really flows out of Jesus' mandate that he's given to the church in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus loved us. He's shown mercy to us. He's unified us with one another through the Holy Spirit, and now he expects the church to live that out practically. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, understand that the reason we have this discussion here at Calvary this morning and the reason we're determined to show mercy to one another in this way is because Jesus Christ has first shown mercy to us. And so while we were in our sin, he provided exactly what we needed when we were in distress because he cared for us while we were bound to sin, and he died for us. While we couldn't save ourselves, and he's given us eternal life, when we're unworthy of it, I mean, that mercy, that's why those who are followers of Christ desire to turn around and show that same mercy to each other. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've given us everything we need to uh, understand how to uh, run your church, You've given us everything we need to know how ministry ought to operate. So Lord, we don't have to be creative, we don't have to be inventive, we don't have to be novel. It's not up to us to determine what a church ought to be or how a church ought to run. Lord, you've given us what we need. You've shown us, so help us to be faithful. Help us to be proper stewards of your church. And so we pray for Calvary, I pray you'd help us to... Follow the pattern set for us in the New Testament. I pray that as Calvary grows, that we'd be able to meet the demands of that growth. I pray that Calvary Baptist Church would be... I pray that Calvary Baptist's health would be seen as its members, overflowing with genuine spiritual desire and genuine spiritual growth. Uh, serve one another. And So Lord, we pray that you'd grow us. We pray according to Ephesians 4 that the ministry of the Word could be operating properly so that the saints could be equipped for the work of the ministry and so that we could grow in loving unity and spiritual maturity and doctrinal stability and selfless service. pray you bless us that way. And then we pray that as the church is functioning as it ought to be, caring for one another, uh, that the world could see the love that we have for one another. We pray that this mercy and compassion and love could spill over uh, into the culture as well. But help us to get our own house in order. so Lord, we pray that you'll bless us as we seek to obey your design for the church. So, Lord, we pray for those who may be considering getting involved in the member care ministry. We pray that you would put them to service. I pray that you bless them as they exercise their spiritual gifts, make them fruitful in every endeavor. And uh, we just pray you'll bless the launch of this ministry. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray for those this morning who are not yet saved. As I've heard the testimonies earlier of those who can recount the day and the time that they received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, we pray that these also, uh, maybe even right here in this moment, would pray to you expressing their faith in Jesus and their desire to be saved in his name. We pray that this date uh, could be on their lips when somebody asked them when they were saved. We pray you would save souls this morning. I pray that uh, they would avail themselves to the mercy that Jesus Christ is extending to them as they are still in their sin. Lord, we thank you for all of this. We just thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.